You're listening to the Off the Rockers podcast, the official podcast of the Atlantic League's High Point Rockers, a place for insights, analysis, interviews, and so much more. Listen in as we break down Rockers baseball from the past week, whip around the Atlantic League, and go beyond the box score with this week's featured guest. All that starts right now. Monday afternoon. Welcome to edition number five of Off the Rockers. I'm your host, Kendrick Fruits, along with David Blake, as per usual. And we hope you spent most of this dreary weekend watching baseball. It was rainy, so there was nothing else to do other than watch baseballs. We've now finally reached the ALCS, the NLCS, and postseason baseball is in full swing. And here in High Point, the weather forecast looks a lot better this week, Javik. I think it just feels like baseball weather. There's no baseball here, but it's great weather. It does, and it's kind of mean. It's mid-October, and it feels like there should be baseball being played right now at Truist Point. But unfortunately, it's not. But if you are in the area, come out to the ballpark. Dine at the Diamond is now Monday through Friday. Walk the points on Tuesday mornings from 8 to 10. You can walk around this beautiful stadium here. In I High will Point. add, I think we walked it ourselves, and one lap around the stadium is like a third of a mile. So just three scenic walks around the ballpark, and you've got your mile in for the day. And you get to walk around a ballpark, which... I don't think of a better way to get exercise really any other way. I think it's a perfect way to get some exercise. Except for and playing. If, if that is playing true. That is true. If you're playing the game itself <laughs> at the ball field or bringing the hot dog to your mouth in the seats while watching baseball, there you go. this is the third best thing. <laughs> Outside of that, Taco Tuesdays at the Pitching Kitchen as well as Just Wing It Thursdays so you can go to the Pitching Kitchen for both lunch and dinner. On Tuesdays and Thursdays. Also, we have kickball on Mondays. You can come out of the ballpark, get some drinks, watch some people have a fun time out on the field. We also have yoga at the point, which is Thursdays from 6 to 7.15. And you can come out to the diamond and, well, where some people are taking short hops down the third baseline, you can be doing downward dog. Well done. I, I <laughs> that was nice. Uh, I want to go back real quick to the kickball league. And this is my first time umpiring, and I know you're umpiring as well, and you know, without getting into some of the players in the games. I know we want to break them down because there's no baseball this year, but just on a broad scale, it's obviously for fun, and, and, and everybody has a great time there, but it's decent quality stuff. There, I've had some really tight games that I've got to umpire so far. It really gives off that sort of Sandlot vibe, and I think one of the biggest things that stands out to me of just working in baseball, and it's just one of those cool moments that it really hits you of this is you know, you're actually working in professional baseball is the first night we did it and the lights come on in the field and I'm standing in right field and it's sort of that moment where it hits you that you're like, this is kind of real. You know, it's not it's not baseball. I'm refing a kickball game at an independent league ballpark in North Carolina. But it sort of hits you that this is, you know, you're part of something. And it's it's really cool to be able to be out in the ball field and have things going on. And it's sort of, it's just in a year that has been so... Not great for so many different people to be able to do things like hang out at the ballpark on Monday nights for two hours and ref kickball. It's just kind of something fun to do, and it really is cool to you know be standing on a field as always. You know, I think I think this goes for most people standing in a baseball field with bright lights shining down and kind of you know live that same lot dream that many many people have. And to be in a ballpark is as beautiful as Truist Point, and to be out in the field uh, on nights is is just so cool, and it's such a fun atmosphere as well. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. 
you've been behind the plate for a couple of kickball games, and I've seen you make some calls on some really close plays. Are you are you gaining a little more appreciation for the job of an umpire, or you think by the time we get back in the booth next year, it'll be uh, we'll be ragging on him again? I umpired Little League Baseball and had to throw out coaches of teams that are like eight years old. So <laughs> I, have, I have an immense appreciation for any amount of umpires at any levels as soon as you have the quick hook when you're 15 years old umpiring an eight-year-old baseball game. Yeah, I, I have. So I've, there's such a big appreciation for the umpires by the point. It is, it is such a tough job, you know, night in and night out. And in the Atlantic League, it's a little bit different with the automatic ball strike system. The strike zone is, you know, not governed by them. But it is, you know, give you a little bit more appreciation to be behind the plate and have people disagree with calls. Sheesh, I was just giving you a hard time, and you took that seriously. <laughs> hey, once, once, you, once you umpire some eight-year-old baseball and you have parents, you know, coming after you at the age of 15, some things you just don't forget. Some things you don't forget. Uh, and unfortunately, a name that we won't forget, I want to transition here to, to a somber subject before we get into our interview, and... Uh, baseball tough week again we just recently were getting over the losses of Lou Brock and Tom Seaver and uh, it's a rough year for the Cardinals Bob Gibson passing away uh, just you know matter of days ago and another Hall of Famer another fierce competitor I mean when you think about the fact that Bob Gibson is almost single-handedly the reason they changed the rules in 19 after the 1968 season a guy who put together a 1.12 earned run average and was constantly up in the top of league leaders and wins and strikeouts. And, and he was a guy where hitters were afraid to dig in against him. You didn't want to get too comfortable in that box because he'd knock you down in a heartbeat. But just an absolute fierce competitor and, and a big loss for the baseball community. It's a huge loss to the baseball community, and it's, it's a sad day for the Cardinals organization. And it's been a sad couple of weeks for the Cardinals organization. His 1968 season will forever go down in history as – one of, I'd say, top five seasons in baseball history as far as pitchers go. Old Haas Radborn season in the 1880s, obviously, is probably far and away number one with carrying a team to a World Series, a pre-modern World Series, in basically one arm. But for Gibson's 68 season, where they single-handedly changed the rules, 304 innings pitched, out of 34 starts, he threw 28 complete games. And of those 28 complete games, 13 of them were complete game shutouts, with a 1.12 ERA. You know you're great when you win accolades, but you know you're a legendary when they change the rules <laughs> just because of how good you are, and that's what they did with Bob Gibson. That's always one of my favorite baseball stories to tell and to look back on, and it's so cool you know, to see that once again, to see that come to light. We, we've talked about this with Tom Seaver and whatnot in the past couple of weeks, that it's... It's sad that they're gone, but it's cool to be able to look back at their history and to be able to look back at how good they really were. And that 1968 season will always stand out to me as one of the, if not the greatest pitching season in baseball history. It's a tough couple of weeks for the L.A. Dodgers, too. They've lost three players in the last few weeks. Sweet Lou Johnson passed away uh, a few weeks ago. He ended up his his top three Best career totals and home runs all came as a member with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, reliever Ron Paranoski passed away, uh, which, of course, he was a, a good relief pitcher. He led the league twice in saves. Those both came as a member of the Minnesota Twins after his Dodgers tenure. But, again, a great relief pitcher uh, for the Dodgers. And then, of course, the 
uh, well-traveled, extremely colorful Jay Johnstone passed away. A guy who was a big part of the uh, outfield for the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Phillies in the 70s and the early part of the 80s. And uh, just, uh, again, baseball world and, and the Dodgers organization just uh, losing lots of iconic characters. And unfortunately, I, I think we've reached this time in, in society in general where we see some generations starting to disappear. And this is one of those generations in baseball history that is starting to, unfortunately and sadly, disappear. And while it, it is awful and it is you know sad to see all this happen these past couple weeks, it has been really a step back in time to look back at these players' careers and look back at their contributions to the game of baseball as a whole because what they've done is is so important. And for many Cardinals fans, they hold Bob Gibson in the same light that Met fans hold Tom Seaver in. Absolutely. As the highest regard. And many Cardinal fans are Cardinal fans because of Stan Musial and Bob Gibson. And if you look at those two guys, those are really stalwarts and figureheads of the Cardinals organization. And... It's sad to see them go, but it also gives us a time to, to look back and, and as I said before, in a year that has been so unfortunate for so many people and so sad across the world in general, for us to take a moment and to look back at maybe some of the happier days in baseball history and to look ahead to the future as well, but to look back at their contributions on the game as the whole is really something we should take to heart and something that I think we should do a little more often. Absolutely, and, and you know, it gives you a chance to just see how great of a player they were. And, you know, if you're like us and you're a Stratomatic fan, break out your old Bob Gibson card for another game. I, I remember when Seaver passed away, I played a, a Mets game, an a early 70s Mets game that night, uh, just to have Tom Seaver pitch that game. But, uh, you know, I think Gibson goes down as arguably one of the top, you can argue first or second best pitcher in St. Louis Cardinals history between him and, and Grover Alexander, Pete Alexander. There's no denying what he did for, for the entire generation of fans. And so I guess ultimately what I what I wanted to just convey, I guess, is is that, you know, while we're losing these legends physically, you know, what they've done and the, the legacy and the marks they have left on on baseball will stick around. And those are things we you know, we'll always think about. Bob Gibson, 1968, the year of the pitcher. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to our next segment of the show and uh, – Really excited about this one. We've had a lot of guys on the show recently with High Point Rockers connections or or connections to the city of High Point. This one a little bit different. We're 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 branching out a little bit to a guy who has some major league experience. A guy who pitched in the major leagues for uh, the majority of a seven or eight year span and was a teammate of Randy Johnson and Ken Griffey Jr. So uh, that's about as good a claim to fame as any. And I don't think you can get much better than our interview subject today, Scott Bankhead. Went to Reedsville High School in nearby Reedsville, North Carolina, and also put together, and we'll get to it in the interview, one of the greatest amateur seasons in baseball history. 10-0 at UNC, then went on to be 5-0 with the collegiate national team that culminated in a silver medal at the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, 10-0 at a prestigious college like UNC is already impressive enough. You could stop it there and say he had a great season, but... How many guys get to say, yeah, I pitched at one of the best colleges in, 
in America, and then I went to the Olympics and didn't lose there either. And he got drafted 16th overall. <laughs> okay, it yeah. just keeps getting better in his career as well. Was winding, but a lot of great stories in there. It's really excited to talk to him from his time with Kansas City to the Mariners. Finished up his career with Cincinnati, Boston, and the Yankees. But it's a fascinating interview. I'll excited for you guys to hear it. And without further ado, here is that interview with longtime Major League pitcher Scott Bankhead. Well, Scott, first off, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to, to join us here today. I want to start you off with a question that we've started everybody off with in this series, and that is, do you have a moment or an early memory of when you fell in love with the game of baseball? Um, the earliest recollection I have of it was when I was about three or four years old, just being out in the yard with my dad. Um, and then as far as games go, I started playing when I was six years old. Uh, no, no T-ball or anything like that during my time. So it was straight into the, into the coach pitch league. But, uh, I remember doing that and, uh, just have been in love with baseball ever since. So who would you say are some of your biggest influences, maybe some players as a kid that maybe you wanted to emulate your game after? Um, you know, this sounds kind of corny, but uh, I didn't really have any professional players that I kind of looked up to or admired. I had teams that I liked. Um, grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina, a small town, and I, I really, the first the first goals I had was to kind of be a Reedsville Ram, kind of get on the high school baseball team. I thought that was kind of a cool thing to shoot for, and, um, you know, those were kind of the guys that we saw in the daily newspaper and I saw around town and could go out and watch, and because we didn't have internets and a thousand television stations, that was kind of the baseball that I followed at that time. And let's hop back to the time machine for a second and go back to your 1984 season because in the course of collegiate baseball and U.S. collegiate national team history, I don't think there's been a better season put together than yours in 1984 between getting a silver medal with the Olympic team at the 84 Olympics, going a 15-0 record combined between UNC and the collegiate national team, and also being picked 16th overall by the Kansas City Royals in the draft. What is your favorite memory of that 1984 summer? I, I think just the, the total Olympic experience uh, from the start to the end, um, just being around that process, being around that environment, um, getting a chance to, to go to an Olympic Games where you're around, you know, athletes from all over the world. It was really kind of a surreal experience, uh, especially with baseball being the first time in the Olympics in a long time that year. Um there was a lot of emphasis put on us during the summer to kind of promote amateur baseball throughout the country as we traveled around and uh, did a lot of things in, in local ballparks, professional ballparks, collegiate ballparks, those types of things. It was really to bring um, exposure and excitement to the amateur game. So I just remember the whole thing is just being just a, just a great two or three months worth of time with a lot of really good people. And at the Olympics, games were being played at Dodger Stadium. The Olympics were held in Los Angeles. There was anywhere from 47,000 to 49,000 people per game, which is an unbelievable atmosphere to play in as a major league player. But as a college kid who just a few months ago had been playing in Chapel Hill, what was sort of – do you have any vivid memories of being out on the mound at Dodger Stadium in front of a screaming amount of fans? Um. <laughs> to be honest with you, all of us talked about not really paying attention to how many people were in the stands. It was it was hard not to do it. Um, I don't know if you recall, but that summer was kind of the beginning of the wave. 
that went around the stadium. So they did a lot of that during our games. And uh, so a lot of excitement, a lot of movement going on there. But uh, when I was pitching, I was trying the best I could to, to focus on doing my job and not paying so much attention to the crowds. But uh, you're, you're right. I mean, the amount of support that we had there um, and then to think that not too many years after that that they eliminated baseball from the Olympic Games was kind of hard to believe just because of the success that, that we had had. And it can be like that everywhere every year if they promote it correctly. And to cap off the summer, to really put you know the gold capstone on top of it beyond the silver medal, was being drafted by the Kansas City Royals and becoming a professional player. What was that transition like from as crazy of a summer it had been for you to then becoming a professional baseball player? Well, we all we all became professionals uh, before the Olympic Games started because we mm-hmm. had all had been drafted, we had all signed, but we had not played any. And to my knowledge, I don't know if any of the guys played any official professional baseball that summer. I know I didn't. I came home and took about six weeks off, and then I went to the instructional league down in Sarasota, Florida. But um, definitely, definitely a different ball game, uh, professional baseball from the from the collegiate ranks. Um, you know, older older players, more experienced players, uh, different mindset in preparation, different mindset in the day to day business of. Uh, having to do it every single day and not just three or four times a week um, certainly was a change of pace for me, uh, for sure. How did pitching in the Olympic Games against a lot of these professional players from around the world, not professional in a sense, but some of the national team players from around the world, how did that help prepare you for eventually getting into professional baseball at the Royals? Well, obviously it was a step up in competition, and during that summer we got to play Several triple-A teams, several double-A teams, several uh, single-A teams. And uh, just getting out there and competing against those guys and seeing that you could be successful against that type of competition certainly helped all of us. And then, uh, like you said, being in stadiums with a lot of people, uh, once I got to the major leagues, it wasn't something that I was totally in awe of because I had been there before uh, because of my experience in the Olympics. You mentioned uh, not totally being in awe of, of the huge amounts of fans in the stands, but 1986, the Kansas City Royals are fresh off of their World Series championship against the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, was there an extra bit of added pressure to maybe come in and perform and, and try to help this team come back and, and try to defend that title? Well, I think it was probably harder to get to that team at that time during that year just because of the fact that they pretty much had their whole staff returning from the year before. Um, and I got off to a really, really good start at the AAA level. And one of the games that was not official for me that year before I got called up was uh, pitching against the Royals in an exhibition game in Omaha uh, sometime in April that year, which I – if I recall, I think I threw six shutout innings against the big league team. And um, so, you know, maybe that was kind of a preview of what they thought I might could do. So I wasn't long after that, I got called up. Well, that for sure helps with confidence, uh, to say the least. And in 86, May 25th was your first career appearance in the top of the 14th inning against the White Sox team that really had all the stars is there any certain aspects of your debut that really sticks out in your mind and some things that you really cherish about that night? Well, it was a Sunday, a Sunday day game. Uh, I had, I had been, I had been called up four or five days before that, but had not appeared in a game yet. Um, had been a starting pitcher 
in triple a double a and triple a and when i got there they put me in the bullpen said they would get me a few few games before they would uh, put me into a starting role and i just remember that day as the game went on and the game stayed tied and everybody left the bullpen but me i knew after dan quisenberry went in that if he threw more than two innings or he had to go more than two innings it was probably going to go to me so uh once uh, once quiz got his couple of innings in i came in and you know <laughs> I knew I was going to be a pitcher of record one way or the other that day because uh, there was nobody left to throw. Um, so I was lucky enough to throw really well for four innings and, and get a win. I remember I think it was the first, maybe first or second pitch I threw. I gave up a base hit, and I thought, man, here we go. This might be not so good to start with, but I settled in and got out of that inning and was able to um, hang on for four innings and get a win, the first first appearance. So – uh, following the 1986 season, you were part of the uh, trade that sent Danny Tartable to the Kansas City Royals. You and uh, Mike Kingery went to Seattle. And uh, fast forward a couple years to 1989, where you go 14-6, and six, you lead the, the team in wins and uh, finish second on the team as far as starters go in ERA. And uh, you had a young teammate named Randy Johnson that was just two years younger than you. What was your relationship with Randy like at that time? Uh, Randy, Randy had gotten traded over. Uh, to the Mariners uh, that year, I believe. Uh, Mark Langston got traded to the Expos, and we got three young pitchers uh, for Mark Langston, and Randy was one of them, along with Brian Holman, and uh, uh, I can't remember the other guy that was traded. I uh, was a right-handed reliever. But anyway, Randy was uh, very raw at that time, threw extremely hard, didn't have great command of his pitches, uh, was still trying to figure a lot of stuff out. Um, but a really really nice guy good friend uh that type of thing uh you know he was just getting started nobody really saw the uh, just his his career exploding like it did i think just because his his early early career struggles with control nobody knew how long he was going to last and you talk about early career struggles with randy johnson could you see the flashes of greatness that would become of johnson or was that sort of something that came later on in in his years in seattle no, you could see it. I mean, you could tell if he ever got command of the strike zone and consistency in the strike zone that he was going to be hard to hit. Uh, there was no doubt about that. I mean, he, he threw close to 100 miles an hour when 100 miles an hour was really 100 miles an hour. Um, so, yeah, you could, you could definitely see if he got that stuff corralled, it was going to be really tough for people to hit him. And that's so fantastic to hear about just time in baseball, and I think that's one of the, the coolest parts about it. What was – Sort of the biggest things you learned throughout your career playing with multiple organizations, what was sort of the thing you learned later on in your career from your early days in Kansas City and Seattle? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think the older you get, the more experience you get, uh, the more comfortable you get in certain situations. I played for five teams and um, was hurt a lot in my career, so... I had a lot of ups and downs when it came to that, and I just think being being around the game and having some success as as a starter, having some success as a relief pitcher, those types of things just helped me in in any role in any team that I went to. And I have one last question about your career before we start moving into to some of your endeavors post baseball or playing career anyways, but uh, right about that time you did start making that transition to the bullpen and and I wanted to look at at 1992 with Cincinnati where you win 10 games and a 2.93 earned run average and 
what was that transition like as far as mindset and preparation goes? Was it was that difficult to to switch from being a starting pitcher mentally to being a relief pitcher? Uh, it it really wasn't. I love to play the game. I love to compete. I was coming off of a couple of years of being injured and having an arm surgery again, and going to the bullpen was really the only way I was going to continue to play. Um, so my my goal was just you know getting getting people out. It doesn't matter if it's from the in the first inning to the ninth inning, or you start doing it somewhere in between and. That's kind of the way I looked at it, and uh, Lou Pinella and the Cincinnati Reds gave me a great opportunity to go over there and pitch in a bullpen that had some really good arms and some really experienced guys. So it was an easy transition for me, and I always looked at it as that you know, hey, I'm going out there to get outs, and it doesn't matter you know when I'm getting them. I just got to go out there and do it so I can keep having a major league job. And your post-baseball career, starting in 1998, you founded the North Carolina Baseball Academy in Greensboro. What was the motivation to create the North Carolina Baseball Academy? Well, when I got through playing, I was you know searching for what I was going to do. I knew I wasn't going to just be a retired person the rest of my life. I was too young for that. So I, I coached at the high school level for a couple of years down in Asheboro. And I uh, just kind of fell in love with coaching, being around the young players. I love giving back. I love teaching. I love doing those things. But I really wasn't that interested in coaching in professional baseball at that time or even, even collegiate baseball at that time because my family was so young and I didn't want to move around and uproot them all the time. So I was trying to figure out how I could do everything that I like to do and maybe do it on my own. So the idea to start a baseball academy kind of, you know, kind of developed from those thoughts and those ideas. And I've been doing it for 22 years now. And, uh, you know, it's been a it's been a wonderful experience and an opportunity for me to kind of give back to the game of baseball at the grassroots level. And uh, I've loved building the relationships I have over the years with different people, different kids, and watching them go on and be successful. A lot of them in baseball, but a lot of them just in life in general. Uh, so we've always tried to be a resource for all levels of baseball, players, coaches, parents, whatever it might be, and uh, just trying to just give them you know, a resource to be able to, to enjoy the game and learn the game. And uh, it's certainly been something I've really, really enjoyed. And for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the North Carolina Baseball Academy, what's the three thousand, the thirty thousand foot view, the bird eye view of sort of what you guys are trying to do? Well, we do a lot of different things here. We uh, we do instruction day to day. We have batting cages. We sell equipment. We have a sports performance program. We have a team program. Uh, we do a lot of different things here. So all of that's kind of built on itself over the years as, as we've gone forward. Um, it's, you know, we have a 12-acre complex. We have a 17,000-square-foot indoor facility. We have three outdoor fields, bullpens, outdoor cages, uh, sports performance training areas outside. So it's really, really a unique place and uh, something that we're really proud of. And everybody that's worked for me, has had a huge part in our success and why we're still here after 22 years, almost at the end of 22 years now. And uh, I'm just thankful that I've had this opportunity to do it. So, Scott, what does the future look like for your academy as far as, you know, do you guys have any plans for growth or development or, or what do you guys expect to be in the future? Well, not really. I, I think we, we try to maintain what we started uh, to this point. Um we sort of developed our facilities 
um, about as much as we can. So now we're just trying to, you know, day to day, just try to maintain a level of excellence that, uh, you know, we try to give the right information and the right instruction to young people and the right direction to them in their lives. And, uh, you know, we, we just enjoy being, uh, you know, a part of this community here in Greensboro and Guilford County in the triad. Well, Scott, thank you very much for your time with us today. We appreciate you, and uh, best of luck to your academy and everybody there uh, going forward. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoy talking to you guys. And that was our interview with Scott Bankhead. We appreciate him taking the time to talk to us. And I think the coolest thing for me, and there's a lot of things to pick. You talk about the Olympics. You talk about being teammates with, with Randy Johnson. The coolest thing for me, though, is the fact that he was so into the game, and baseball was such a huge part of him that by the time his playing career was over, he, his first thought, his big thought was, how can I give back to the game? And I think the whole point of, of bringing that academy about it and getting that whole process going and the whole program started is just a huge, huge tribute to the guy and a tribute to what baseball can do for people. And it, it's the gift that keeps on giving, if you will. One guy is you know, a baseball for life or they in turn want to pass it on to somebody else and, and it'll click with one of them and then they'll have a baseball career and then they'll pass it on and just over and over and over again. I think that was cool. And I think my biggest takeaway from the interview is his time growing up in Reedville, North Carolina, because I think as many young kids around the country today sort of go through is seeing the stars and seeing the bright lights of baseball and through TV or the internet or radio, whatever medium they get it, they are ingrained with Major League Baseball. And for Bankhead, when he was little, it was high school baseball. And he got his enjoyment and his, what he looked up to through high school baseball, which is something you don't see a lot today, which is really cool to get that insight. Okay, so this is kind of fun. I thought we'd, we'd jump in on this. So ALPB Roundup is doing a thing this month where they're going to be counting down the top 100 players in the history of the Atlantic League. Now, obviously, with the Rockers only being around for one season, you wouldn't expect them to really have a whole lot of representation in that. But I thought it'd be kind of fun for us to, to mention our top five, Javik, because, you know, there's obviously been some some big names that have been here through the Atlantic League. But when you look at the players who have been here the longest and some of the ones who have had the most pronounced careers, sometimes they're the guys that maybe the, the everyday baseball fan hasn't heard of. So I think it's a great opportunity to give some of those guys and their careers a little recognition. And I think it's also a great way to sort of give you guys listen a little bit of a background on the league because the High Point Rockers are a new team. They've only played one season in the Atlantic League. But the Atlantic League has been around since 1998. There is a lot of history in the league, and even though this is a High Point Rockers baseball podcast, it's also a baseball history podcast. And as broadcasters, we sort of love knowing all the happenings of an entire league's history. And this is a cool way to sort of go down that path and find who we thought was our top five players. So I'll start first, Kendrick. My top five, we're going to start at the number five spot. If you want to talk about a mainstay at the Long Island Ducks, you first talk about Lou Ford. Their outfielder played with the team for one season in 2009, then has played with them since 2011, just recently announcing that he will not be playing in 2021, which makes 2019 his final season in the Atlantic League. And his career totals are pretty darn good. 10 seasons, 752 games played, 
a career 320 batting average, 75 homers, 921 hits, which puts him sixth all time, and a career OPS in the Atlantic League at 863. And from there we go to another player that is currently still playing on the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. It is Daryl Thompson, who has year after year after year been a model of consistent success in the Atlantic League. He's played with the Blue Crabs since 2012 and has spent his entire Atlantic League career with the Blue Crabs in eight seasons, 158 starts, 3.76 the ERA, and second all-time to someone who we'll get a little later in this list. I will say about Daryl Thompson real quick, I remember last year, I think every time he pitched against us, it was eight innings, one run, seven innings, no runs, something like that. Every single time there was a game... Oh, goodness. I want to say it might have been the game that Michael Bowden pitched the Immaculate Inning uh, in early – it was July 31st last year. I'm pretty sure that he grabbed early headlines for that. Bowden did. And then Thompson ends up pitching eight innings of one-run ball or something like that, and, and, and the tide completely turned, and that's just the type of pitcher that he is. He is. He's also a very good strikeout pitcher as well, as I was saying. Second all-time in the Atlantic League with 744 strikeouts. So we'll move up to a guy – who played in the beginnings of the Atlantic League, and Glenn Murray, an outfielder, and you ready for some throwback Atlantic League team names? He played for the Nashua Pride and the Bridgeport Bluefish from 1999 to 2005 and one season in 2008, and he has the claim to fame as the all-time home run leader in the Atlantic League with 158 homers across eight seasons and 760 games played. And going to second on the list is someone who, even though the Rockers have only been around for one season, this guy has Rocker connections. John Brownell is my second-best player in Atlantic League history. He's played between 2012 and 2019 with the Long Island Ducks and the 2019 season with the High Point Rockers. In eight seasons, he has the claim to fame of the most wins of any pitcher in Atlantic League history at 75, 56 losses to his record as well. And he's also first in strikeouts at 860, more than 100 clear of Daryl Thompson in the second spot. And number one is someone that if you look at the Atlantic League records, you are going to see this name in almost every single statistical category, and that's Bryant Nelson, an infielder who played between 2006 and 2016 for, and this is a list of teams, the Bridgeport Bluefish, Long Island Ducks. Shout out to the Camden River Sharks, the Lancaster Barnstormers, York Revolution, and the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. So there really aren't many teams he didn't play for in the <laughs> Atlantic League in 11 seasons. He is first all times in games played with 1,013, which is just a testament to the character of Bryant Nelson because we've talked about this. Independent ball isn't Major League Baseball. It is a lot of bus rides. It is a lot of road trips up and down the East Coast. But Brian Nelson played 11 seasons in the Atlantic League and has played 1,013 games, most all-time. Most all-time in hits as well with 1,096. Third all-time in doubles and fifth in RBIs with 520. And I don't think there's a player more fitting to really encapsulate all things in Atlantic League than Brian Nelson at the one spot. Well, so this is kind of funny. I'm looking at my list right here, and there are two players on your list that I do not have on my list, and one of them is your number one in Brian Nelson. I think maybe if I had to if I had to expand my list back, I think I probably have him six or seven. Uh, he's up there for sure. And, and I also did not include Lou Ford in there as well, although I will say that I remember as a fifth grader pulling out a Minnesota Twins Lou Ford card out of a pack of Topps 2005, so... 
Uh, it was definitely interesting. I remember the the little baseball fan of me coming out a little bit when when Ford was here last year. I'm like, hey, memory flashback. You know, it was really really kind of fun. So uh, here is my top five. So I have Daryl Thompson in the number five spot. Uh, I was really wrestling between him and Tim Kane, longtime pitcher in the Atlantic League. Kane. Uh, is the all-time winningest pitcher in the Atlantic League and third in the uh, all-time strikeouts. But I think last year's season for Thompson really flip-flopped him for me. 15-8 and eight last year, a 3.13 earned run average. In fact, three consecutive years of an ERA under four for Daryl Thompson. Uh, and Tim Kaine ended his career, I think, with a 4.55 or so in the Atlantic League. So ultimately, that gave Thompson the nod. Number four spot for me, Ray Navarrete. Uh, I picked him, a guy who spent a lot of time with Long Island, uh, not a huge power hitter, although a couple years uh, did reach the 20 home run mark. 2008, 27 home runs, 103 RBIs, and a 307 average. A guy who was productive all the way up through his age 35 season uh, in Long Island as well. Number three for me was Jeff Nettles, a infielder. I uh, was actually drafted by the New York Yankees. Sounds like another Yankees infielder we know. Jeff Nettles, a guy who came in and uh, played a lot with Somerset. Actually spent his entire Atlantic League career with Somerset reaching the 20 home run mark three times, a career high of 99 RBIs with the Somerset Patriots in 2005. Not a whole lot in terms of the batting average. He did hit 300 in 2007. He uh, reached 316. But otherwise, just a, a good power bat. A quarter, what do you expect from a corner infielder, if you will? We actually shared the number two spot. I gave John Brownell my number two mark here in the Atlantic League top five players of all time. And Brownell actually moved into second place on the wins list last year as a member of the High Point Rockers. He went 2-0 uh, wearing a High Point uniform last year. The second one, uh, or the first win was to tie second place, and the second one may, uh, allowed him to stand alone in second place on the all-time wins list in the Atlantic League. And my number one choice, I went with Glenn Murray. You mentioned a career leader in home runs in the Atlantic League. Uh, he joined the Atlanta's first season was in 1999, 29 home runs, 102 RBIs and a 272 average. And the power just continued. Get this. So he was 28 years old in his first year in the Atlantic League when he hit those 29 home runs. Fast forward to age 34, his next to last season. You want to th think if he was still productive? He was still productive. 31 home runs at age Woo! 34, 98 RBIs, played a partial season the next year, so uh, not counting those necessarily as, as his final as final full season, but 31 home runs, 98 RBIs, a 265 average. Oh, and did I mention he could steal a little bit as well, twice reaching 20-plus stolen bases in the Atlantic League, so Glenn Murray got my nod as the greatest player in Atlantic League history. He was someone who... Every year, you knew it was going to produce. But my favorite part about going through all this, and as a baseball history nerd, this was probably my favorite part beyond looking at the players. The old team names and logos, because you had players from, and this is, if you are a fan of the Atlantic League, these are some real throwback names. The Atlantic City Surf, whose logo reminds me, remember those fountain drink cups you used to get, like the really early 2000s that was just screamed 90s, like the teal, oh, yeah. the colors, basically what their uniforms looked like. <laughs> it was awesome. You know, the Bridgeport Bluefish, Camden River Sharks, Lehigh Valley Black Diamonds, the Nashua Pride, the Newark Bears, the New Britain Bees. So many just fun, cool, old Atlantic League names that really have kind of been lost to history. It was cool to sort of read up on those teams and sort of get 
you know, a sense of, of the league as a whole. It was a great history dive. A great list of names adorned the history of the Atlantic League, and the Gastonia franchise hoping to add to that list as they are narrowing down their mascot to the finalist. Christian Heimel tells us about it in Around the Atlantic League. The newest Atlantic League franchise in Gastonia, North Carolina, announced finalists for their team name last week. The five finalists are Fire Ants, Honey Hunters, Uppercuts, Hogzillas, and Hot Shots. Fans can go to their website to vote for their favorite pick and learn more about each of the five finalists by visiting GastoniaProBaseball.com. With teams across the Atlantic League landscape forced to reinvent themselves in 2020, a big focus has been placed on lending a helping hand to those communities all summer long. On October 1st, the Long Island Ducks partnered with the Island Harvest Food Bank to provide over 400 Central Islip residents and Long Island veterans with food. And in Southern Maryland, Blue Crab's radio broadcaster Andrew Banstra was named the Ark of Southern Maryland's Chapter Volunteer of the Year. Banstra was saluted for his work with an organization that is committed to the rights and quality of life for those with intellectual and developmental disabilities. With your look around the Atlantic League, I'm Christian Heimel. the Atlantic League really excited to see what ends up becoming the winner for our Gastonia franchise we can start naming our rivalry and start coming up with with the way this is going to be I'm just excited to have an in-state rival uh somebody that we can just drive what an hour hour and a half down the road and and get to to see a, a Rockers game yeah we've seen some pictures of the stadium as well I'm really excited to see the football field size of Foul territory that is at that stadium. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun to see it. And the ballpark looks beautiful. Holt, all turf, just like here at Truist Point. But it's going to be really cool to see that ballpark in, in full and, and with the bright lights on it come April of 2021. Absolutely. We're still waiting on our 2021 schedule to be announced. Obviously, once that uh, is dropped, we will show it to you. We will post it on our social media and we'll break it down on whatever the next podcast is uh, following the schedule being announced. But right now it's time to finish this show with the weekly walk-off. Javik? Well, my weekly walk-off is a hat tip to the greatest baseball broadcaster of all time. I don't think you can get better than Vince Scully. And on this day, Monday, October 12, 1949, Vince Scully worked his first ever broadcast doing play-by-play for a Maryland BU football game at Fenway Park, Maryland taking home the 14-13 victory that kicked off, well, the greatest baseball broadcasting career. In well, I'm going to keep up with your theme of on this day, but I'm going to move up in history to 1967. On this day, 1967, the late, the great Bob Gibson, his third complete game of the 1967 World Series, defeats the Boston Red Sox and the St. Louis Cardinals take home the championship. Well, that will wrap things up for edition number five of Off the Rockers. Again, Scott Bankhead was our guest today. You can check out our podcast on Apple Podcast and on Spotify. For Javik Blake, I'm Kendrick Fruit. Have a rockin' week, and we'll see you next time.